0: All right, we are back. Let's do a couple obituaries and then do what I talked about at the top of the program, pull, anchor, and drift. I want to note the passing of Los Angeles Times cartoonist Paul Conrad, who passed away earlier this month at age 86. Obituary by James Rainey in the LA Times said, Paul Conrad whose firstly confrontational editorial cartoons made him one of the leading cartoon provocateurs of the second half of the 20th century, and who helped push the L.A. Times to national prominence, has died. Conrad won three Pulitzer Prizes, a feat matched by only two other cartoonists in the post-World War II era. He both thrilled and infuriated readers for more than 50 years with an unyielding liberal stance, rendered in savage black and white. Conrad liked to say, Don't ever accuse me of being objective. During the 1960s, Conrad savaged then-Governor Ronald Reagan so frequently the Times publisher Otis Chandler quipped that his mornings began, usually with a phone call from the governor or his wife expressing outrage over Conrad's latest drawing. Conrad specialized in single-panel images, rarely used dialogue, and kept words to a minimum. Noted the Times, the paucity of words didn't diminish the sting of his cartoons. He loved making trouble. Conrad once wrote, I learned that a picture is worth a thousand words, and then when the establishment gets mad, they always go after the cartoonists, not the editorial writers. Of course, as it happened when uh, Conrad's stalwarts, including Otis Chandler and his successor, publisher Tom Johnson, left the Times by the early 1990s, the cartoonist would say later that he felt the culture at the paper shifting and felt a loss of support. When the Los Angeles Times offered a buyout of the entire staff back in January of 1993, Conrad decided to take it. Most of us just figured our days were numbered, he said after his retirement. We just said, let's get the best deal we can and get out of here, which is a rather sad commentary on the state of journalism in America. All right, final obituary, the passing of art director Robert Boyle, who died on August 1st at age 100, said The Economist. In the 1930s, many, if not most, of the graduates of the Southern California School of Architecture ended up wandering the backlots of Hollywood Studios. Robert Boyle was one of them. He dreamed of building apartment complexes, corporate headquarters, modernist town halls. The Depression wiped out the need for any of those. Instead, he he found himself supervising the construction of a full-scale model of the Arm and Torch of the Statue of Liberty for Saboteur in 1942, upon which Robert Cummings and Norman Lloyd could confront each other with deadly smiles while the East River crept below. He did the whole range of presidential heads from Mount Rushmore, big enough for Cary Grant and Eva Marie Saint to clamor across the brows of for North by Northwest in 1959, and created a quaint shtetl of leaning wooden shacks, hen coops, and carts for Fiddler on the Roof in 1971. Robert Boyle did an awful lot of work, as you can tell, for Alfred Hitchcock, and some of it's pretty darn good. I had a chance to check out Saboteur a week or two ago and uh, was impressed by his reproduction of the Statue of Liberty. Mr. Boyle apparently uh, did some painting as well, and in the 1930s uh, spent some time in Mexico with Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo which I think allows me to back into this uh, this pulling up anchor we've been talking about since the top of the program. I've sort of been impressed as we do this show that, uh, well, that whatever we damn well please part comes up every so often. As we sort of follow threads that uh, this correspondent finds intriguing and curious and or curious. Now, we're still trying to get Norman Lloyd, he who uh, confronted Robert Cummings uh, on Robert Boyle's uh, bit of... Uh, stagecraft back in 1941, Norman Lloyd's 96. He's apparently still available, and we're, we're hoping you bring him onto this program. But I mentioned last week or the week before that we got this idea from watching Me and Orson Welles, an excellent movie, which I was first put on the trail of by noted movie critic uh, Will Durst. But I realized how interwoven a, a lot of these things are. I saw Norman Lloyd perform on this, uh, this play, Leviathan, uh, put on by Ray Bradbury and, and, and done in honor of Norman Corwin and Ray Bradbury in Los Angeles in May of last year. i got to say that uh, Bradbury and Corwin are two of our all-time favorite interviews. We refer you to our archives for those. But the only reason I knew anything about Norman Corwin from was from having read Gerald Nachman's book, Raised on Radio, something we're going to talk about, as I say, in the weeks to come. When the L.A. Uh, chapter of the Museum of Radio and uh, Television announced they were going to do a tribute to Corwin five years ago, I thought, that's an event worth attending, and it certainly proved to be. We got to have some wonderful chats with uh, with the legendary Mr. Corwin. When, uh, when our, our correspondent in L.A., Bruce Bronstein, managed to arrange an interview with Ray Bradbury, I think maybe one of the great moments I've had in radio was... After finishing the interview with Bradbury, mentioning that we were going to leave his house and go over to visit Norman Corwin again and give him some CDs, and and he just got misty-eyed and said, tell Norman I love him. Told a story about how Norman Corwin had taken him out to dinner back in 1948 when he was a young man and how much he appreciated that. And when we mentioned that to Corwin, he said, boy, Ray, I, I got a lot of mileage out of that dinner. Ray's still telling that story 60 years later. But it strikes me how intertwined all of this is. We were able to talk to Norman Corwin about the fact that he was in the CBS studios who because his show followed that of Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater when they did that fantastic hoax based on The War of the Worlds. That is one of our uh, favorite bits of old-time radio. We have talked about that on Halloween, I think, on, what, three, four occasions, Mr. McMillan? One or the other. We like it so much we're sure to do it again on this, uh, this coming uh, uh, Halloween program. But every so often, I like to just sit back and, and look at you know what we've done here in the last uh, god eight and a half years on this show, and it's just it's just been it's been a great privilege to have been able to do this and bring you some of the guests we've just delighted in interviewing. And as time goes on, it just strikes me how these things do kind of intertwine. For example, after being knocked out by me and Orson Welles and getting on the trail of Norman Lloyd, I ordered on the internet some uh, some other works by Wells, including F for Fake. This movie came out when I was in college, and I remember thinking about going to see it because it had gotten some mixed reviews. But I think what kind of sunk it for me was looking at the little man in the Chronicle who had left his chair, as he does when <laughs> the movie is truly dreadful. F for Fake blends together uh, the story of Orson Welles's own uh, Martian uh, hoax, along with that with uh, probably the greatest art forger in history, Emil Dehore, and his biographer, Clifford Irving who himself became an epic hoaxer when he tried to fake the world out uh, with the allegation that Howard Hughes had contacted him to do his biography. Wells points out in the movie that Clifford Irving apparently learned a thing from Emile de Hore, the the great art faker, and decided to to do some uh, artistic fakery of his own, which he failed at and went to prison for. But uh, a lot of things struck me. The fact that uh, Orson Welles, at age 26, on his 26th birthday, Citizen Kane came out. It's still considered to be arguably the greatest movie ever made. That's a kind of a difficult title to lay upon any, any any particular artistic endeavor, but it certainly makes everybody's, just about everybody's, favorite list. And if it isn't the greatest movie ever, I don't know what is, personally. But I'm somewhat angered to think that the Hearst Press, given that Citizen Kane's uh, Charles Foster Kane is a rather thinly disguised William Randolph Hearst, it's fascinating to see some of the extras for F for Fake that Hughes. That, uh, that Wells said, yeah, well, there's several people that were the, the role models for Charles Foster Kane, and one of the people we thought about making the movie about in terms of uh, interesting uh, rich guys was Howard Hughes. So I really, you know, again, I really enjoyed this movie, and I recommend it to you very highly. F for fake, and get the DVD, the two-set DVD, if you can, that's got the extras. One of the extras is a documentary about Emil de Joré, uh, which sort of plays the whole thing straight. Which, which is very much not the case with F for Fake, which plays with uh, the viewer quite a bit. When the movie Aviator came out, we had a chance to uh, talk to someone who'd been a test pilot for Howard Hughes. That would be George Merritt, whose book Howard Hughes Aviator we talked about back in December of '04. about the time the uh, Leo DiCaprio movie came out. When we had a chance to chat with uh, General Chuck Yeager, we mentioned Howard Hughes, and he just poo-pooed this very idea that Howard Hughes had had a bizarre appearance and had let his hair go and fingernails grow and all that. But the evidence seems pretty clear in the end that that was true. So watching that F for Fake extra where they replayed the Howard Hughes interview, where, forced by Clifford Irving, he came out to talk about uh, you know that what he was really up to, was absolutely fascinating from a historical perspective and artistic one as well. What fascinates me was that the, the F for Fake talks about how the experts aren't able to tell things very well, and when Hughes did that interview, and it clearly was Howard Hughes uh, in retrospect, there was some doubt as to whether the, the voice, the mysterious voice heard during that interview back in 1972 was the real guy, which struck me as interesting when they were doing a review of the, the Osama bin Laden tapes, that have been issued. There was a recent program about uh, asking why Bin Laden's still alive, and they had experts saying, "Oh, those tapes are not Bin Laden; they're fake." And then they would show an analysis the, of the, of the facial structure, saying, "No, that that's obviously the same man." But it struck me in watching that movie and and also watching the excellent uh, Richard Gere uh, film "Hoax" that the key to Clifford Irving's success in in passing off this phony baloney uh, biography of Howard Hughes was not mentioned at all in the whole F for Fake uh, series of uh, of features, but did get passing mention in Hoax, wherein the real guy that was the key to uh, the success of of, of the fakery, Noah Dietrich, appeared in film, played by Radio Parallax guest Eli Wallach. Wallach, at age 91, was portraying Noah Dietrich, who'd been uh, Hughes' right-hand man for decades, Dietrich had written a biography about his early days with the young Hughes and asked Clifford Irving to go over it for him. Clifford Irving took it, stole all a lot of the incidents that appeared and and tried to pass that off to Hughes insiders as proof that he uh, had been talking to the old man. Well, since only a few on the inside knew some of these stories, that uh, that gave him a lot of credibility. It's all a fascinating mix. We made a few many trips to Los Angeles for this program and on one of them uh Investigative journalist Lisa Pease and I traveled over to the Romaine Street address where Howard Hughes had sort of surreptitiously operated much of his empire in the 1940s and 50s, and it was it was a very, very curious little field trip. Howard Hughes is one interesting character, and you follow the threads that go into his life; uh, uh, they they will lead you in all kinds of interesting directions. And as one of the uh, more curious figures, I guess you'd say, of the 20th century. That's something that I'd, I'd recommend that you do, dear listener. And, of course, one place you might start is F for fake. And, uh, you know, hoax ain't bad either. You know, Richard Gere does a pretty credible Clifford Irving impression. And, you know, Clifford Irving himself is still with us. Doggone it, Mr. McMillan. We, we may want to get him as a guest, too. He'd be a good one. Certainly. And we put out feelers to some other uh, uh, fellow movie lovers, uh, Matt Perry and and Gary Chu, who writes for the Humor Times. And we're going to see if we can't uh, talk about some of these issues with them, because the whole interplay of history, politics, power, and the movies uh, is a curious one. I think I was most fascinated to learn that uh, that that you know, as, as he floundered about in his later years. Orson Welles is, you know, maybe the great example of downward mobility in show business history, starting out with Citizen Kane at age 26 and ending up late in life as one of the Hollywood squares. I don't know, pretty, pretty much defines <laughs> downward mobility in my book. You know, but it's clear that at the end, he, you know, he still had it. He still had that, uh, that genius uh, that, that had been leading him throughout his life. He had a project involving Peter Bogdanovich and apparently involving the filming of John Houston, the, the great actor and, and director, titled The Other Side of the Wind, which is apparently largely was completed before uh, uh, Orson Welles passed away. He apparently asked Peter Bogdanovich at a dinner a few years before he died to, uh, to promise him that if something happened to Orson that he, Bogdanovich, would finish that project for him. Bogdanovich just said you know, he would, and uh, apparently on, on the DVD says that uh, in the next year or two, we can probably expect to see the last great work of Orson Welles uh, hit the theaters. I, I hope that's a, an accurate prediction. Anyway, I think these are fascinating topics. I, I hope we've uh, you know, illuminated them for you in, in, in over the years, and I hope we'll be able to continue to do so for, for some time might be worth noting in closing that uh, that Orson Welles, at 26, took on the giant, uh, the powerful figure of, uh, of William Randolph Hearst, and uh, paid a pretty stiff penalty for it. Citizen Kane was nominated for nine Oscars, including Best Picture, and was thought to be the odds-on favorite to win in every category. It only won two Oscars. If you look it up, for 1941, the Best Picture Award went to How Green Was My Valley. Considered, you know, by all to be a good... Good solid film, but it's no Citizen Kane. And I'm struck by the fact that even when I was in college, uh, the disapproval of the Hearst family still managed to give a F for Fake the review of the little man out of his seat, having left the theater in disgust. Did he ever get the center square at Hollywood Squares? <laughs> Good God. No, I don't know whether uh, Orson actually ever got the plum center square, whether the, uh, the Hearst organization denied that to him. I, I just don't know. Anyway, and thanks for helping out, Mr. McMillan. You're welcome. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week, hopefully with Jared Diamond, and the week after that with Gerald Nockman. You know those are going to be good.